Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Well, I think we'll get underway now, so welcome everybody back. And if you could just take your uh, seats. I hope you enjoyed morning tea and that uh, previous uh, presentation would have generated plenty of discussion, I'm sure. Um, welcome back. We did have, have just had one, uh, a couple of complaints through the help desk that uh, the clicking function on some of the uh, devices is a bit an, an distracting for people. So if you could turn the clicking function off, please. I've turned mine off. And if you don't know how to do that, someone on the help desk can do, help you with that too. So, Welcome back. One of our, our next guest is, is uh, well, hopefully not, but you might think at times part of a dying breed in this country, a newspaper man. Peter Harcher is a, an award, uh, a Walkley Award-winning journalist who is currently the political and international editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. He's been writing about power and politics, war and peace, booms and busts for 30 years. In fact, yesterday he was here at the conference for one of the sessions and then when he left here he had to go and write about the situation in Thailand. So he's right in there, locally and internationally. His latest book, The Sweet Spot, has been described as the 21st century, century reply to Donald Horne's The Lucky Country. Peter also had the honour of being the last person to interview Donald Horne before his death in 2005. So how could we not get him on the bill for this conference? Would you please make him welcome? Uh, thanks for that introduction, and um, also thanks to, uh, to Dennis Moriarty for making very efficient arrangements um, to get me here. And um, although I see in your charter of beliefs you believe in mayhem, I think, uh, Dennis, you, you're actually excelling in the field of efficiency rather than mayhem. Um, and um, I may well be part of a dying breed, but, um, well, um, just, just now I'm feeling pretty alive. I don't know, um, I don't know how I feel at the end of uh, our little chat. Um, the, the book that I wrote was now three years ago called The Sweet Spot. It was about Australia's national condition, and it was really, it was a bit of an update, uh, half a century on, of uh, where Horn had seen Australia in 1964. Uh, it wasn't consciously um, written that way. In fact, it only occurred to me when one of the reviewers said that exactly uh, as you just heard that it's um, a it's, uh, 21st century reply uh, to Horn. Um, I want to start with a fable. Um, it's a, a fable you've probably heard. It's an old Aesop's fable. It's the story of the wolf and the house dog. Excuse me, journalists just normally run on alcohol, but it's a bit early in the day even for me, so... <laughs> feeling, feeling up on caffeine, I'm sure you've all had a, had a crack at it. Um, in the fable of the wolf and the house dog, uh, there's a hungry, prowling wolf out looking for his next meal. He hasn't, he hasn't eaten in days. And he's pretty ravenous. And he happens to come across a sleek, plump, very uh, satisfied-looking house dog. And um, he says to the house dog, you're looking pretty well. How do you get to eat so well? And the dog says, oh, well, my master takes care of me and feeds me every day. And the wolf is instantly envious 
and instantly uh, wants to work out this scam and uh, uh, inquires about the detail. And as they're talking, the wolf happens to notice on the house dogs, uh, around the house dog's uh, uh, neck, the mark of a, left by a collar in the, uh, in the dog's fur and says, what's, what's this around your neck? How do you get that? And the house dog says, oh, that's from where my master changed me up. The wolf, of course, is astonished at this and says, what do you mean chains you up? You can't move, you don't have your freedom. And the dog says, oh, no, but I don't mind so much because he takes such good care of me. Now, of course, um, that's a fable about the balance uh, between the security and comfort of the house dog and the freedom, but also uh, the leanness and hunger that comes with it of the wolf. Now, Australia's genius, in my view, uh, has been getting a balance of qualities of both the wolf and the house dog and bringing them together. Uh, economists have put it, and politicians have put it, a different way. They talk about uh, the US model versus the European model. Uh, the US, of course, um, is, is the wolf model. The US has um, a very, very scant social safety net, uh, but it, in the last century at least, has had much higher rates of economic growth at higher levels of income with a smaller safety net. The European model, on the other hand, uh, has put greater emphasis on protection, on, on security, on the safety net, and less, less emphasis on economic freedom, deregulation, laissez-faire, and, uh, and all of that stuff that goes with the European model. Um, Australia's genius, and one of the reasons that my book was called The Sweet Spot, was bringing those two together uh, in a sensible, workable way to get a balance that brings the best of both models and the worst of neither. That is, uh, relatively high economic growth and high levels of prosperity, together with uh, a, social, a, a sustainable social safety net um, that is all brought together in an affordable way that a country can support in the long run. Now, um, it can be done. We, we're, living, we're living proof of it. Um, the, the wolf uh, and the house dog brought together created the dingo. <laughs> um, that's the taxonomy of the dingoes. I, I had to look it up, but I confess. But, um, but the, um, the dingo is, um, is a crossbreed a successful crossbreed of those two uh, species brought uh, in an, ad an adaptable way, an adapted way to Australian unique conditions. The dingo doesn't get great press, does it? The dingo um, isn't very glamorous. There was that whole unfortunate affair with the Chamberlains. Um, it doesn't have a great image, but it's well adapted. It's a sprightly, uh, fit creature and uh, not yet not yet headed for extinction, but there are some fears. Now, the sweet spot that Australia achieved and the sweet spot that I wrote about, now this is three years, uh, this book was published three years ago, so we're now looking in the rear vision mirror, and then I, I want to update the situation shortly. But first of all, the situation Australia hit 
while the rest of the world was still reeling and recovering, or at least the rest of the developed world was still reeling and recovering from what we call the great, uh, the global financial crisis and that the others called uh, the Great Recession. Uh, Australia had achieved uh, among the highest income levels in the world. In fact, in 2008, Australian income per person uh, exceeded that of the US for the first time in a century. Uh, in the 1990s, Australian per capita income was about uh, 40% lower than that of the US. Uh, by, the time of t by the time we hit 2010, it was 40% higher than the average US per capita income. In fact, Australia's average income per person was higher than that of France and Singapore, uh, Japan and Britain. The countries to which Australia had always looked as uh, models and guides, Australia had exceeded. And also in living standards, not just a question of income alone, because as we know, income alone is an incomplete picture. The two credible international uh, measures of living standards um, are the, the UN's Human Development Index and then more recently the OECD's Better, Living, uh, Better Lives Index. According to the uh, Human Development Index, published annually by the World Bank, uh, by the UN rather, the, uh, Australia's um, living standards are the second highest in the world out of 190 countries surveyed. Uh, Norway was the only country that pips Australia uh, and that's still the situation by a fraction of a, of a point. Of course, I submit that if you add the, add the weather and the climate to the index of measurement, uh, you know, Norway would have to vacate the dais. Um, to, to get that outcome, the human, in, human Development Index puts together three indicators, income together with health outcomes and educational outcomes. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slightly broader picture. The OECD Better Lives Index is broader still and puts together 15 different indicators of living standards. Uh, and it puts Australia uh, for the last... It's only, the thing's only been running for three or four years, but it puts Australia at the very top, the very pinnacle of living conditions in the developed world. Uh, and equality is, uh, is far from perfect in any human society. Australia does not have the greatest measured levels of equality in the world. Uh, but um, in 2000 and by the time we hit 2010-11, Australian equality had pulled ahead, according to the OECD, of the OECD average for the first time. That is, uh, we'd become uh, less unequal than the average of developed countries at that time. Uh, we hear a lot about inequality worsening across the world, which undoubtedly it has and continues to do so. But in the, the great Australian uh, restructuring, renaissance and economic revival that we've seen now that we can look back on 22 years of unbroken economic growth, uh, not everybody but almost everybody has participated uh, in that improvement. Um, I'm relying on Peter Whiteford of the ANU for uh, my information but uh, Peter says that uh, in the last 20 years, where the, uh, the average Australian household in terms of uh, percentile band has increased real, so inflation-adjusted, disposable income by about 50%. The lowest 10% uh, of uh, households has also improved their real disposable household income by about 40%. At the top, at the top level has pulled away 
uh, and inequality has widened. But the point is that Australia managed to bring almost all of the country along with the experience. Now, um, the trick is, of course, getting the balance between those two outcomes, getting the economic outcome and the prosperity and then the use of that and the distribution of that and the participation in that to create the equity, the fairness that makes a functional, happy society. Uh, now, the great rejoinder that you hear to this and I get to this uh, and, the and the general international impression of Australia's um, unquestioned economic success in recent years is, but it was all just luck. Uh, you know, you guys didn't actually create this. This is just because you happen to live on a bunch of rocks that people can profitably dig up and sell. Um, your success was predestined in the stuff that you found under the ground when white guys first turned up in Australia. Well, I would say if you look at where Australia began, if you look at the ingredients in the beginnings of the Australian settlement, um, I don't think you'd say there's anything inevitable about it at all. Sticking Britain's criminal effluent uh, into the driest continent on the planet, with the exception of Antarctica, driest inhabited continent, with the most fragile ecosystem, uh, imposing a military dictatorship on it, uh, and with an incredibly racially intolerant uh, policy set, you would not, to create a successful economic outcome, think those were the starting point ingredients, would you? <laughs> but of course, they're not. Um, it's um, like the line from the castle. It's what you do with it, love. Um, and John Keane, who's a, an academic at Sydney Uni and written a marvellous book, a very large but marvellous book on the history of democracy, uh, has commented that the, on Australia's uh, outcomes, the land called Australia hardly seemed the place that would be remembered for its gifts. Now, in this case, he's talking about representative democracy. Only radicals believed that the sunburned continent called Terra Australis could make important contributions to the world. Yet nonetheless, it did so. The eight-hour day, the secret ballot, the right of women to stand for parliament, the first workers' party to be elected to majority government, in these and in the establishment of other rights for the common people, Australia was democracy's champion and history's pioneer. At the time Australia federated in 1901, that's the end of Keane, and this is now me, Australia was a proudly democratic, egalitarian society with the highest average income per person in the world. Not only that, this is something we overlook. We overlook a lot of our own story in Australia. We're busy looking at others' stories, mainly the Americans. Um, we forget that Australia was the first country in the history of the world to vote itself into existence with the Federation referenda. It was a profoundly democratic starting act in Australia's modern history. I'd also say to anybody who thinks that uh, national destiny and national success is written in, you know, um, there's a whole literature, as you know, about the reasons for national success. It's resource endowment, you know, the whole mining argument. 
Uh, no, it's cultural. Uh, no, it's, uh, uh, it's racial. Or there's even a theory that it's ling linguistically based. Uh, all of these schools of thought have their day. Um, but to anybody who believes in any of those things, I have five words. North Korea and South Korea. Here you have two countries created out of one country, out of one people. It's a pretty recent construct, and it goes back to the Korean War. Uh, same people, identical. Uh, in fact, millions of Koreans are related across the border to people on the other side. And if you look at the resource endowment, of course, linguistically, ethnically identical. If you look at the resource endowment, it's actually North Korea that got most of the resources. Um, most of the coal and other mineral resources are under North Korean soil, soil, not South Korean. And yet look at the outcomes. North Korea is one of the most abject countries in the world with sub-Saharan levels of poverty. About a third of the country is in permanent famine um, and just the most dreadful record of human rights and economic deprivation. And there you have South Korea... Um, a thrusting, prosperous, vibrant capitalist economy, one of the most successful on the planet. What does that tell you? It tells you that the determinative power of resource de deployment, resource endowment, or uh, racial type, or linguistic group, or whatever, is not the central determining factor. The swing factor is the quality of governance and policy. Um, Australia, Australia's current prosperity, sure, the mining boom has, has kicked into it, but Australia's happy modern situation, um, or maybe I, sh I shouldn't use the word happy because we all love a good whinge, and uh, if you turn on the radio, in fact, uh, visitors from abroad, I don't know if you, you hear this, they sometimes comment, they'll turn on the radio, TV, read the newspapers, you think the country were in, you know, pretty bad condition because we love a good wine and we fill the media uh, with, um, with our complaints and that's normal, everybody likes a good whinge but we need to keep, um, keep things in perspective here. In the available spectrum of actual national conditions and outcomes around the world, Australia did achieve the best living conditions on the planet. In fact, if you look at it historically, the best in human existence. The mining boom uh, has added an increment of income to the late phase of the 22-year boom that Australia had running. But let me just point out to you, because visitors from abroad um, uh, assume that it was all just the mining boom, and a lot of our politicians tell us the same thing, and, of course, the mining lobby tells us exactly that. Uh, but the truth is that Australia, at the time the, f the first phase of the mining boom kicked in, in 2003-04, uh, already had enjoyed the longest boom in its history. Uh, household income had already doubled under the Howard years, Howard Costello years. Unemployment halved. Uh, Australia had already been held up by the OECD as a model economy. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning American economist, had already held Australia up as the miracle economy of Asia. Australia had already ridden through. I mean, remember they used to say about Australia that when America sneezes, Australia catches cold. Well, Australia had already ridden through, uh, growing undisturbed, the 
Asian financial crisis, which took some of our major trading partners into recession, uh, lived through the 2001 US recession, the so-called tech wreck, a stock market crash and the recession that followed, and then the Great Recession or the global financial crisis. Uh, Australia had done all of that, except for the, 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 the most recent one, the most recent global financial crisis. Australia had, had done all of that before the mining boom arrived in 2003, roughly. So the mining boom added uh, an extra kick at the end. According to the Reserve Bank, it's added about 14%, roughly one-seventh to Australia's national income. And of course, it's contributed enormously to Australian exports. It's not any minor detail. However, it did not create, set up or sustain the current Australian wave of prosperity. In fact, it was mining that led, uh, and mining booms and the mentality that that produces that led Donald Horne uh, to the central thesis of, of his complaint about Australia as he found it in the 1960s. And that is complacent. It's the great complacency which so frustrated, angered uh, and annoyed him. And I'll quote him. Now, he doesn't talk in uh, the lucky country um, so much about the mining boom, but let me, let me tell you what he said and then I'll tell you what he said to me later on. He wrote, and this is the most famous uh, phrase, of course, from the lucky country, under the subheading, uh, Living on Our Luck, Horn wrote, Australia is a lucky country, and this is a very familiar line, of course, run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them, they are often taken by surprise. Yes, it's a searing indictment of Australia's leadership class, um, and, and the great national complacency. Uh, it's sort of a cargo cult mentality that Australia uh, has long had that you just need to sit around long enough and another boom will turn up um, and you don't really need to work for it too hard. And in the same phase, Horn was actually very critical um, of Australian expectation. It was not just the complacency of the leadership class but the expectation and what today might be called entitlement mentality of the general uh, population. Horn wrote, the general Australian belief is that it's the government's job to see that everyone gets a fair go, from old age pensioners to manufacturers. A fair go usually means money. Australians see government, which they both trust and despise, as an outfit whose job is to help them where they need help. The fair go, according to Donald Horn, is essentially a non-competitive concept, a demand for protection, an attempt to gain security and certainty. Whether it is an underdog in a factory or a top dog demanding tariff protection, the feeling is that justice lies in a guarantee of existence. To fight for existence in an open market must be avoided, although one may use legal or other lurks. Um, this was, this was the, the, the overall mindset that the country uh, was in at the time Horn wrote this in the 60s. Uh, and he asked the rhetorical question, can the racket last? And in the only uh, use of uh, all cap 
letters in the whole book, he wrote the answer, no, in capital letters, exclamation. Australia's real luck was in breaking out of that leadership uh, void, that torpor and complacency that Horn wrote about. Um, it's not fashionable to say this, and we certainly didn't necessarily appreciate these people at the time they were in power. But it's pretty clear, looking in the rear vision mirror, that uh, we had a generation of high-quality political leadership in Australia. We had the Hawke and Keating years, followed up by Howard and Costello. Now, in both of those governments, we saw difficult and unpopular reforms implemented in the national interest. Remember, um, politicians don't need to do anything difficult or unpopular if they choose. They can talk nonsense, muddle their way through um, and just do nothing or will do what they think you would like them to do. National leaders who do difficult and unpopular things because they think it's the right thing to do are rare. We were blessed with an entire generation of them, the combination of those four individuals and the governments that they led. Um, people say sometimes, and this is a common question, they say, what's Australia's biggest problem? Uh, is it your health system? Is it productivity? Is it education? Is it the high Australian dollar? What's the biggest single problem that the country has? And my answer to that is, um, well, the biggest single problem is not so much any individual problem, but the problem-solving mechanism itself. Now, the problem-solving mechanism we call national politics. And in my view, we got lucky. We got lucky with high-quality national leadership. We did not get lucky with a mining boom. Sure, a mining boom has advantages, and I've mentioned some already. But it also brings high costs. The greatest of those costs is that complacency and that mentality that we don't really need to work for it because the world will deliver it to us. But there are other costs, um, other costs as well. Why has the Australian dollar spent so long above its, its post-float average of 75 cents? Why has it been at parity with the US dollar uh, and is today around 92, 93 cents? Well, that's the mining boom. And uh, demand for Australian resources pushed up the Australian dollar to levels which made every other sector uncompetitive. So to accommodate the mining boom, every other sector has absorbed a, a competitive disadvantage. There are lots of reasons that you don't want an economy to be sustained only by a mining boom, why it's a really bad idea. Apart from the fact it generates only around $1 out of 10 of national income, only employs around 2 to 3% of the workforce. What successful, prosperous modern economy uh, could possibly run with only 3% of the workforce uh, uh, in gainful employment? So um, a mining boom is both a blessing and a curse and needs to be managed and needs to be put in the proper context as being just another event, just another economic event in a larger framework. Australia's great economic rejuvenation and reform that snapped it out of the phase that Donald Horne saw it in happened under those reforming governments that I already mentioned, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, uh, and then you had uh, John Howard and Peter Costello, or certainly in the, the first phase of the Howard-Costello years. Uh, 
Now, it's no coincidence that that phase happened not during a mining boom, but between mining booms. All of those reform years occurred when there was no mining boom going on in Australia. Likewise, it's no coincidence that what the economist Ross Garno calls the great Australian complacency returned, according to Garno, in his dating system in the year 2000 or thereabouts. And then the mining boom arrived shortly after, about, around about 2003, depending on exactly where you want to measure your commodity price increases from. Garno has called the, the time we're in now, starting 14 years ago, the great complacency. And uh, there is indeed an old adage among policy circles that good times bring bad policy. After a long run of unbro unbroken economic growth and then followed by a mining boom, uh, it's about as good, that, as good a time as you could get. Did it bring bad policy? Uh, let me just return to Donald Horne uh, for a minute. Sorry about all this, but the coffee's run out. And now Horne... Um, when I interviewed uh, Donald Horne in 2005... Um, it did happen to be the last interview of his life, but he was very frustrated. He was frustrated partly because his health was really poor and he was wheezing and coughing as we spoke, um, and he kept apologising for it. But he was also frustrated because of, um, of this exact factor. He said to me, it's quite appalling to discover people saying today that Australia is still the lucky country because we have all these minerals there's still a bloody, lucky country mentality. Now, he said that he thought Australia had improved mightily since he'd first written the book uh, because we, we had enjoyed the benefit of that economic restructuring. We had Im enjoyed uh, a recovery in Australia's relative position. Remember that when he wrote the book in the 60s, Australia was at the beginning of a long, genteel, slow, but very real decline in its relative position in the world. That had turned around by the time I was talking to Horn in 2005. And yet, he saw everything that Australia had accomplished being thrown uh, out the window if there were a return to this lucky country mining boom complacency. Um, to, to my mind, relying on a mining boom to power a national economy is like um, taking your surfboard down to the beach and waiting for a tsunami. Uh, to get a good ride, you know, you, you might wait a bloody long time and when the thing turns up, you might regret what you, getting what you asked for. Uh, inherently unpredictable, massive disruptive events uh, and certainly not a, a serious basis for building a sustainable national economy. Now, uh, in this great complacency, is this true? Have we, is, is Garno right? Was Horn right? did Australia return to a great national complacency? Um, well, I'd point out a couple of things in our recent political history. One is that um, you'll remember when Australia voted the Howard government out in 2007. That was the first time in Australia's history that we had voted out of power a government uh, at a time of unambiguous economic growth. What does that tell us? I suspect it tells us that we've come to take economic growth as a given, that it's not something that we need to particularly work at, worry about, 
or place high value on. And then, perhaps confirming my suspicion, uh, when the Labor government under Rudd, with a little help from the Reserve Bank and 1.3 billion Chinese people and their government stimulus program, when Labor managed to get Australia through the, uh, the Great Recession without a recession of its own, we seem to take that for granted as well. And he was bundled out of power before his own party, before the electors could even get a chance to vote on him. And both in the last years of the Howard government, not, not the early reformist years, but in the last years of the Howard government, as well as in the uh, Labor government, that we've, Labor governments that we've just seen, there was a persistent message that we could have everything. Um, in my view, they did pander to our complacency and our sense of entitlement. Now we see the mining boom disappearing. What have we got left? I mean, it's tailing off uh, pretty notably. We can now see the end of the thing. What do we have left? What do we have to show for it? I reckon, now you don't hear politicians ever saying this, but I reckon that some of Australia's greatest achievements were bipartisan. Both sides of politics can take some credit. Also, many of our greatest national failures have also been bipartisan. Both parties can take blame. You won't ever hear a politician say that because they're too busy taking credit for themselves and apportioning blame to the others. But in my view, just as it was both parties under Hawke Keating and then Howard Costello who contributed to the rejuvenation of the country, both parties under the last years of uh, Howard and under uh, recent years of Labor have catered to our sense that everything is okay, perfect yet improving, and they can continue giving us everything we want. What do we have left at the end of the biggest mining boom in the history of the country and 22 years of unbroken growth? Well, we know we've got uh, much higher living standards and uh, incomes than we had 20 years ago, but we also have today, we have a country, if you look at the federal government's finances, it's, it's true that there is no budget emergency. However, what we do have is a federal government that spends 26% of GDP equivalent and collects 23 in taxes. Now, that's a 3 percentage point of GDP gap. For how long can you continue to spend 3 percentage points more than you collect in revenue? I mean, there's only one inevitable outcome of continuing that pattern of behaviour. We had um, uh, half-begun improvements on some big equity projects in Australia under the initiative of uh, Labor and Gillard, um, and I think particularly, I think it was actually Bill Shorten's own particular uh, personal project at the beginning, National uh, Disability Insurance Scheme. Uh, we saw Labor propose and the Coalition accept on a bipartisan basis the desirability of an NDIS. We see important uh, work going to the foundation of that. And yet it's clear that there are, are major hesitations now uh, about the funding and the ability to pay for it uh, and there is now a major rethink going on by the Coalition about what, when and how it can deliver. Uh, we see sluggish growth uh, in the economy for some years to come. Not terrible, but not, uh, certainly not up to potential either. 
and we see unemployment in Australia um, almost on the same level, roughly 6%, almost 6%. Uh, that's the level of US unemployment. After the US has just come through one of the greatest and most wrenching economic downturns in its history, our unemployment, we can't do better. In Australia's history, I would put it to you that from Federation till today, we've seen the pendulum swing only four times. Now, the pendulum I mean here is in any policy decision, as you know, there's a tension between efficiency on the one side and equity or fairness on the other. Um, now, every major policy decision has to address both equity and efficiency, but inevitably there's an emphasis one way or the other. Um, in my view, from Federation till 1983, it's a long span, the emphasis in Australian policymaking was on equity. This was a country, a new country, where uh, the national project was nation building, federating the states, and creating out of a colonial society a new country with a new identity. Uh, and we saw what's been called the Australian settlement under the rubric, uh, under the rubric of the Australian settlement. We saw white Australia, so a closed enclave, part of the British imperial economic structure, uh, with a protected. Uh, economy, high tariff barriers, protecting it from global competition, uh, and then uh, arbitrated wages and a very rigid national wage system. Then the pendulum swung the other way in 1983. When Hawke and Keating took office, they began then a phase where the emphasis went off equity and onto efficiency, uh, and that's the rejuvenation of the economy. The trick is to get the balance, of course, is to try and pursue one without losing the other. And I would submit to you that uh, the emphasis on efficiency ended in 2007, maybe a little earlier, depending on how you interpret the late Howard years. According to the Treasury, by the way, uh, in the last years of the Howard government, the, the mining boom generated windfall gains of $320 billion to the federal government. The Howard Costello government uh, gave away as tax cuts or spent 94% of that, according to the Treasury. So this was not um, a frugal government. By the end of the Howard Costello years, they were, I would submit, uh, uh, also entering the great complacency. So from 2007 to 2013, certainly, we saw the emphasis under Labor switch back to equity over efficiency. Now, it's true that um, the Rudd government got the country through the global downturn without a recession. Uh, and it's also true that uh, at that time, it was an expensive stimulus project, but it worked. And at that time, the Rudd government said, Australia's net debt will peak as a result of this stimulus episode. We've spent a lot of money, but the net debt will peak at 7% of GDP, and then it'll start to taper away. Well, when Labor left office, it was 13%. It is today around 13% of GDP, and still increasing. So um, that's... You know, you can keep that up, as I was saying before. You can keep that up for a while, but who, who deals with this? Where is the reckoning? It, how long do you leave it and how wrenching does it become? The equity gains uh, and equity emphasis from that government, um, there were some great initiatives. Um, the re-indexation re of the age pension, uh, the creation of an NDIS, the vision of... Uh, a needs-based school funding model, the Gonski model, these are all 
great ideas, uh, and which is why uh, they had bipartisan support. The question is, or at least up to a point they had bipartisan support, the question is how to get the balance to get the equity improvements and the economic efficiency, how do you get the balance, how do you achieve that sweet spot? The Abbott government, I think we can now say, um, and this evidence is actually pretty fresh, I think, uh, is swinging the pendulum back the other way, away from equity and back towards efficiency. There were two threshold moments. The first was the decision on protection of the car industry. Uh, the second was the budget, uh, where uh, we see the government not only retrenching spending, which was, in my view, uh, at some point necessary, and they, the uh, Abbott government hasn't persisted in the fiscal fantasy that the country can continue to spend more than it collects and get away with it forever. But they've also made uh, choices within that fiscal envelope. They've made specific decisions about spending and resources uh, which are very ideological uh, and are trying to force a change in national behaviour, national culture, national thinking, explicitly, as we know from the Treasurer, to break the, what he calls the age of entitlement. Um, in my view, I, I won't develop this theme at the moment, but I've written about this. This budget reveals a more ideologically driven Conservative Party than the Howard government uh, itself, which had been thought to be the high watermark of Conservative ideology in this country. It's not. Now, the trick is that the government not forget. And the pendulum does swings. There are lurches and movements and emphasis. But the trick is that the government conduct the necessary fiscal repair without forgetting the essential value of equity. Uh, now, there's a common assumption, especially among uh, hardline conservatives and especially among economists, that the concept of equality or equity, which are two different concepts but related, is some warm and fuzzy thing, it's an ideological thing, it's an emotional thing, and for many people it is. But it's much more than that. Equality, uh, and there's no such thing as perfect equality, but reasonable, manageable, sustainable equality is uh, a highly utilitarian concept. Uh, we know that with increasing certainty from the mounting pile of research that we see. Um, the groundbreaking book, The Spirit Level, by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, um, uh, talked about, summarised beautifully the, um, the body of work, empirical work, building on this subject to make an overpoweringly, in my view, persuasive case uh, that inequality contributes to social ills and problems, but it's uh, taming, managing and buttressing uh, the balance between e equality and inequality is central uh, to succe the success of a modern, a modern uh, society. They summarised uh, more than 200 published peer review papers testing the link between income inequality and health and more than 50 on the link between income equality, inequality and violence and wrote that it is clear that greater equality as well as improving the well-being of the whole population is also the key to national standards of achievement 
and how countries perform in lots of different fields. Inequality contributes to violent crime, depression, mental illness, obesity, educational failure, even personal debt among the social ills of Western societies that grow worse as inequality grows worse and improve as equality increases. So this is empirically based. This is not ideologically asserted evidence that uh, equality is not just something that makes you feel good and it's not just rooted in some uh, fond, fuzzy concept of mateship or being nice to each other. It's actually a hard utility of a modern society. And the greatest contributors to equality, uh, we now know from, again, mounting evidence as well as, I guess, common sense, are education, and we heard Julia Gillard uh, on that subject yesterday, and employment. These are the two great equalising factors in Australian or in any society. Knowing that, then you have to kick in the efficiency factor. How do you pay for quality education? How do you have a successful economy that generates employment for everyone who wants it? You need the economy to be sound, sustainable, and generating the prosperity to pay for uh, the social equities that we mustn't forget. We hit a sweet spot. We need to work out how to sustain it. Governments have to keep in mind both parts of the equation. Australia is neither a fat, lazy house dog nor an aggressive lone wolf. We have produced a unique national combination. Um, we need to uh, develop, sustain this well-adapted, sprightly, local model. Um, I hate to use the word dingo again, but... Um, this is the balance that the country has pioneered between uh, the house dog and the wolf, the US model and the European. It's a unique thing. It's an immensely valuable thing. Uh, we need to, to preserve it. We need to work both sides of the equation. And contrary to common belief, it will not eat your baby. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.